Right now, I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. I'm a little shaky this morning, so I'm not going to kneel, but I'll be kneeling in my heart. So, if you bow your heads with me now, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for this holy Sabbath day, uh, for the opportunity that we have to come together here and around the world to worship thee in spirit and in truth. And, And Father, we thank you for the Sabbath. We thank you that you created a day for us. It tells you that you really love us, that you um, are a part of our living and our process of living. And and, uh, we appreciate that. You're not just some God that's afar off, away in in the heavens somewhere, but you're intimately involved with us. And so we praise you for that and thank you so much for that. And we thank you for the angels that uh, you send to help us and protect us and and, uh, provide things for us. We, we appreciate them and pray that you will bless them. And, and uh, Father, we pr- thank you for the household of faith, uh, like believers, that we can come together and, and have a, a godly fellowship one amongst the others and, and that we can work together to help those in need and to spread the gospel. But above all, Father, we thank you for Jesus, that you sent your Son to die for us at Calvary and to live a life of righteousness and show us your true character. We thank you so much for Jesus and we give uh, our hearts to Him now. Uh, Afresh, whatever's happened in the past, we can't do anything about. We ask forgiveness for those sins, Father. We pray for grace. Father, we pray that uh, you forgive us our sins. and, And as we come together here to learn, open our minds up to the truth. Help us, Father, as individuals to get into the order that you have that you wish for the, uh, ourselves, our lives, and our homes, and may it trickle and, and ripple actually out into the church, that we may come into order and unity, unity of heart and mind with you, and, and that uh, we can have the latter rain poured out upon us. We know time is very short, and we need to be ready. Help us to be ready. We pray in the name of Jesus, who is so worthy. Well, I started uh, part four <laughs> of this message um, a couple weeks ago. It's a message that I entitled uh, "The Home and Church," and I got about halfway through it a couple weeks ago and and needed to stop. We were at time there, and and so it, it turned into part five. <laughs> but uh, we've been talking about and comparing God's order uh, in the family the family unit, as an example for order in the church. And we started out in the broad sense of God's principles, and we've been narrowing in and narrowing in and getting, getting more towards the bullseye of what and how God wants His church to be organized and in order. And so what we've done is we, we, we looked at the order of the, the home and we've compared that and learned lessons from that uh, for the order in the church. And the last time we were together, or I don't shouldn't say that, a couple weeks ago when we talked about this, um, I want to uh, share with you again the eight fundamental truths that we started out learning about biblical church order from these studies. The first was that the Christian family circle is a church. We learned that. That, that uh, Adam and Eve were the first home church. <laughs> right? Uh, the second thing was family order teaches about church order. The third thing was that family and church are organized for character development and for service. That's why the church is organized, friends. It's for service. It's to spread the gospel. Right? Uh, A fourth uh, uh, fundamental truth is that it's not to be a congregational type of organization or a a hierarchical uh, form of organization, but a representative form of order. Because Jesus said we're all brethren. We all have... We're invested in it, you see, and we all have a say, right? Uh, a fifth thing was that we are to be united in faith and doctrine. And doctrine, again, meaning teachings, the teachings of Jesus. And that includes who and what the church is, which we went through, the definitions. We spent some time on that, didn't we? Uh, sixth thing, we're to have a covenant bond with each other and God. You know, it means something. 
a little bit more to us when we have to put our signature down, doesn't it? We're committed then, aren't we? Uh, Same thing, we're to have a name who expresses who we are. We were born and given names from our parents. Tells people who we are. The church is to be the same. When you organize a church, you need to have a name. You need to have it out front. Let people know who you are. Um, And the eighth thing was that leaders are to be set in the church according to biblical qualifications as well as the calling of God. And uh, that's what we talked about uh, a little bit uh, a couple weeks ago. We talked about leadership, how God uh, places leaders in the church. Remember our scripture reading was from Titus 1.5 where, uh, you know, we were to put elders, Paul was saying, put elders, ordain elders in, in every city, every church. And we talked about the qualifications and such and, and those things. And, and, um, and I wanted to share with you, before we get uh, pick up where we had left off, but I wanted to share this again with you, this statement from Christian Experience and Teachings, page 195. Uh, she talks about organization and the importance of it. And I can't emphasize it enough, friends. Um, she says here, she says, as our numbers increase, now this is speaking back about when they were organizing, the Adventists, the early Adventists in the Advent movement, and they saw that organization was essential. And this is what she's talking about, that time frame. She says, our numbers increased. It was evident, as our numbers increased, it was evident that without some form of organization, there would be great confusion. If you're not organized, they're going to, it's not just going to be confusion, friends. She says there would be great confusion. And the work would not be carried forward successfully. We want Jesus to return. We want to hasten His return. Organ, being organized according to God's principles will do just that. Right now we're kind of split off in, as independent atoms all around the world and there's some organization but not gospel order. Not the, the kind of order that's needed an organization that's needed. She says to provide for this is what organizations for. Remember, she says to provide for the support of the ministry, for carrying the work in new fields, for protecting both the churches and the ministry from unworthy members. That's important. For holding church property, for the publication of the truth through the press, and for many other objects, organization was indispensable. And and I wanted to point the, these things out that I want you to notice very closely the five main reasons listed for profit proper organizations. These were main reasons that she laid out. There are other reasons. These aren't the only reasons for organization. But these were the five that she laid out. To provide support for the ministry. You know, it does take support, you know, to do service. And God laid out the principle of tithes and offerings to do just that. Uh, to carry the work of the ministry into new fields. We're to be missionaries. Now, the reason I'm going through this is because this kind of parallels are looking at the family circle and the things we've learned about the roles of the husband, the wife, the children in the family home. Okay? To protect the churches and the ministry from unworthy members. We are to be united in doctrine, the teachings of Jesus, right? And there is to be church discipline. When someone... Uh, and you go, go through the most all the Bible. This is so important. I, I can't emphasize enough the importance of this one. Because this is why so many churches fall. This is how Babylon fell. They didn't weren't they, they laid down their guard to the doctrines and they didn't discipline the church members who were living in sin and bringing worldliness in and such things. And the organization is necessary for that. Proper organization, see. They became, uh, when you lay down your guard, you become disorganized, <laughs> basically. Uh, the fourth thing, to hold church property. Well, to have legal ownership. This is something that the founders of this country recognized away, right away. It's, it's included in the Bill of Rights. <laughs> you know, Legal ownership. I have a right to it. It's mine. It's no one else's. And the police aren't allowed to just come in and, and take over or anyone else, as far as that goes. Uh, so you see some of these principles used practically, see. And the fifth thing she said, to publish the truth through the press, you know, evangelism and such. So I, I, I wanted to bring that to your attention again before we get started here. 
pick up where we left off because uh, you'll start. I, hopefully, you'll see parallels here um, in in uh, more parallels. I should say in comparing um, what she she said there and um, the the organization of the family circle, the church, the home church, so to speak. Um, and so we began looking at uh, a couple of weeks ago. We also we talked about leadership, their responsibility stuff, and then, then we get in and, and and we started looking at um, the similarities in the, in some lessons before earlier. We 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 looked at man, the man's role, didn't we? And we looked at uh, that one of his roles in the home is that of leadership. And then we saw the the similarities uh, between that and leadership position in the church. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Um, now we can also see great similar similarities between the woman's role and that of members, church members, members in the church. And so what I wanted to do, and I started to do, was to go back and take a look at those responsibilities of the woman, the wife, and the mother and see the parallels to the roles and responsibilities of church members. And I, I got as far as number one a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I'll just go over that real quickly and then we'll get get back into it here. So uh, the first thing was that she is the helpmeet for the man. Remember? Men, men and women were created equal in their relationship to God and each other. We understand that. And among other things, that infers... Uh, companionship and love and affection, and for a married couple, of course, sexual intimacy. Now, you don't have that in the church, but you can see that there's no striving for supremacy here. They're equal, but man, as the leader of the home, will and has the responsibility to make a final decision. Um, We saw that the same with the leaders in the church. But notice that the members, and that includes leaders, they're members as well, are to uh, have a fellowship, a companionship with other members. They're to love each other, they're to have an affection for each other. See, they're to help each other, to help me, to the leaders. And we we looked at a couple quotes from uh, the Spirit of Prophecy you know, talking about how the members are to help the ministers out and uh, to be there to to support them. Now, that's worthy ministers, okay? And so I think we understand that. Now, I want to pick up here where we left off in part uh, four with number two. Um, the wife, or the woman, the wife, the mother... She was to be a servant. That was the second role that she has that God has given her. Men and women are equal in the eyes of God. I think we all can agree to that. We can understand that. But each has different roles. And it wasn't... They weren't the ones that chose the roles. God ordained this. God set it apart. These roles. So they have different roles. Women are... to submit to the man unless it places them in a position of disobeying God. Now you look at that, how uh, the members of the church are to behave towards ministers. They're to be servants. Now they don't submit as a, a slave to a master, per se. Okay? Or to a boss. And we'll talk about that. But... Um, Let's let's look at that and let's compare it now, and uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll see the parallels here. Uh, hopefully, we will. You know, all church members are to follow the example of Christ. Wouldn't you agree with that? Serving one another in love, and that's that's the point that I'm trying to stress here. We're all to be servants, aren't we? We're called to different roles. All right, Philippians two. Uh, let's look at that. Philippians two. Begin with. Uh, Verse 3. And I'm really going to have to move along here. I don't want a part 6. 
Philippians 2, verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. That's what's being spoken of here. That's what we all are to have in our hearts, right? That's what Jesus did. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Don't just pay attention to your own stuff, but, you know, the needs of others, not just your own needs. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the key, isn't it, friends? Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It, was something, it wasn't something that, that he strove for to attain, you know. He wasn't ambitious like that. Um, but, verse 7, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Not just of natural causes, friends, even the death of the cross. Most terrible way to die, at least at that time. But uh, notice that Jesus became a servant. He gave up all the, the glory that he had in heaven and became a human being. He became a servant. Not just a hum- he didn't just become a human being. He became a servant to human beings. A servant even unto death, the death of the cross. And so, all are brethren and equal, but they have different roles. Okay, The membership is to be guided by godly men. We talked about that. Leadership. We looked at the qualifications. But members must be willing to be guided. We looked at those two quotes again. And to help out, to be servants to, to the ministers. Not as an employee or employer type of, um, of organization, but as having different roles. Because as we looked at it, leadership, leadership is a call to be more of a servant to the flock. But you're also closer to God in, in one respect. And that God has chosen you to lead. You have certain leadership qualities. And people, someone that, that is to, to represent Jesus, see, uh, to, a local, to a local group. Um, and so uh, the members must be willing to be guided and submit to the leader's God, uh, a leader's God-given authority to lead as long as he's not leading away from Christ. Okay? 1 Peter 5, verse 3. Peter said, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Okay, and he's talking about leadership uh, qualities. If a leader is lording over the flock, leading away from the truth, or is sinning openly, then there are principles that the members are to follow in dealing with him. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor especially they who labor in the, in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. And so here's a principle here, when it comes to you know, elder, pastor, evangelist, etc. Against, verse uh, 19, against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why that's there. Um, and, and, and why Paul is talking about this. The, the greatest attacks from public, from the world, is upon the leaders of a local church or of a church. Those are the greatest attacks. And so m- there are uh, there is a greater opportunity to make false accusations against the leader. Because the principle is, if you take out the leader, you know, as uh, Isaiah says, strike the shepherd and the sheep shall flee. <laughs> you know. And so what Paul's saying is, he's laying out a principle. And, and we'll get into it a little bit more here. But he says... Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin, rebuke before all, that others also may fear. If he's in open sin, you, you have a duty to stand up and rebuke him openly. 
if it is, if he actually is um, openly sinning, and what I mean, not a sin necessarily that, uh, I mean, it may be a sin that he doesn't know about. That's something that you can work out between yourselves. That that would be an elder that has a teachable spirit. But someone who knows it's sin and is openly doing it or teaching it, he needs to be rebuked in front of all. And Paul goes on and says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. No jealousies there. Because there are... Let me tell you something that opened my eyes. I <clears throat> When I was going through the the lay pastor training in the Indiana Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, and it was a charter class, it was the first class, uh, Moy, were my eyes open to the jealousies that there are between pastors. Now, I have no jealousies towards any other pastors, but uh, and I, I never even thought of such a thing, but my goodness, I'm going to tell you, wow, it's unbelievable, friends. Those pastors of the smaller churches, they're very jealous of pastors of the larger churches. You know, it's just, it's just, it was terrible. It just broke my heart. It, uh, but it's there. And so Paul's laying out here some principles here. He doesn't urge favoritism of any kind for those that are in office uh, who do wrong. He simply desires to protect faithful leaders uh, from some who may wish to well, depreciate their uh, influence by false accusations. I mean... It's really a very serious moment when one church member accuses another of sin, don't you think? So consequently, any charge should be thoroughly validated by reliable witnesses before it's made public. And that's what he means. He's talking about receiving not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Not just anybody who comes and says, oh yeah, I witnessed it. They may be false witnesses. They've got to be reliable. They've got to be validated as reliable witnesses. You know, such counsel forbids reckless accusations whereby the reputations of innocent people are damaged and their confidence in the brethren is weakened. And I can tell you I speak from experience with this. As you know, in, in the past I've had false accusations raised by more than two witnesses against me and they were witnesses I never even knew these people. They didn't know me. They just went by the word of one other person who had an axe to grind. They weren't reliable witnesses. But damage was still done. But if God or the church chooses a leader and he's living up to the light and the Holy Spirit, there must be a willingness to be led. That's the, that's the point of number two here. There must be a willingness to be led by uh, the membership. And remember, submission is, definition of submission, isn't, like I said, you know, a slave to a master. It's choosing to defer to or consent to abide by the opinion or authority of another. That's what submission is. Okay? Jesus is the prime example of submission. <laughs> he is the example to us. He submitted to the Father. The Father is His leader. And... Members are to be submissive towards those that God has chosen to lead. And again, the Bible's not speaking about a hierarchy form of order like the Catholic Church, but that the members are submitting to each other and to those who are called of God to build up and edify the church as responsible leaders who are under Christ. And that's the key, see? As Paul said in Ephesians 4, verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets. Who was it that gave? In this case, it was the Holy Spirit. It was God, wasn't it? And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. Do you want to have a perfect character? There's a reason why leaders are called. They're to help in that process. For the work of the ministry. That's what they're there for. For the edifying of the body of Christ. To build it up. Till we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. Speaking of character. To have a character like Jesus. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So 
So it's God that gave or called such leaders for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry and such. And refusing to submit to their leading. Friends, there's all kinds of support for this. I hope you can understand it. Refusing to submit to their leading is refusing to submit to the leading of God. We see in the examples of Moses. You know, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram refused to submit to Moses. And they found that they were actually rejecting God and they were, re, um, they were not just rebuked, but they were destroyed for their rebellion. God called it rebellion against God. Acts of the Apostles, notice this, page 164. To neglect or despise those whom God has appointed to bear the responsibilities of leadership in connection with the advancement of the truth is to reject the means that He has ordained for the help, encouragement, and strength of His people. For any worker in the Lord's cause to pass these by and to think that His light must come through no other channel than directly from God is to place himself in a position where he is liable to be deceived by the enemy and overthrown. The Lord, in his wisdom, has arranged that by means of the close relationship that should be maintained by all believers, Christians shall be united to Christian and church to church. You see that? Christian to Christian, church to church. Talking about organization here. Unity, they go hand in hand. Thus, the human instrumentality will be enabled to cooperate with the divine. Every agency will be subordinate to the Holy Spirit, and all the believers will be united in an organized and well-directed effort to give to the world the glad tidings of the grace of God. Let me tell you something. How effective is a church going to be if the members don't heed anything that the leaders bring to them? Any other counsel? Or just half the council. That's what the problem is with the professed church. They only listen to what they want to listen to. Number three. The wife, the, the woman, the wife, the mother. Number three, she is to be the manager of the home. The home is to be a little heaven on earth. Household duties are to be done efficiently and in good order to please the husband and God. This includes being orderly, industrious. We looked at these, remember, before. A nurse, a cook, a seamstress, a maid, handle finances, those types of things. You know, when we come together for worship, we should get a taste of what heaven is like. That's what we say. And I pray for Give us a taste of heaven. When you go to church, everybody should be in one accord and at peace with each other and with God. The members are to, to recognize and be in gospel order. That's why we're going through this. So we can learn these principles, friends. And this is more than the spiritual health of the church, but the physical as well. They're to help keep the church in good order by taking care of the physical needs of the body and the property, if they own the property. Because it actually is God's property, isn't it? This frees up the leadership to fulfill their responsibilities just as the original, you recall, the, uh, the seven deacons took burdens away from the apostles and freed them up to fulfill their calling in edifying the body of Christ and the spreading of the gospel. And the larger the congregation, the more there is to handle. Just like the larger the home, the more there is to handle. And some of this parallel gets into spiritual gifts, and I'm going, uh, I may address that in a later study. But um, I mean, I've seen the physical needs neglected by some ministries, and it is a terrible witness to their neighbors, friends. And I've heard this uh, failing on their part, excused by saying that, well, all the funds go into the spreading of the gospel, like that's an excuse. That property is still the property of God, and God has principles of stewardship. I mean, to keep up the physical aspects. Now, I'm not talking about luxuries or anything like that. But to keep it up. Uh, and to keep up those physical aspects is a part of the gospel order. And it, and it must be maintained. Uh, fourth thing. She is to be a missionary. Home is her main missionary field and school of learning as she hones skills in leading her family to God. But she also ministers to the poor and needy as a missionary outside the home. What do we learn 
from that in organizing the church. Well, Paul counsels the church in Galatians 6 and verse 10. He says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Paul's putting a principle out here. You see, the missionary field begins in the household of faith. That's the church. We learn from the role of the mother, that's the home. It starts in the home, but it's also in the church. It begins in the household of faith, but extends to the neighbors and then to the world. I've seen many a church neglect its members in order to support missionaries abroad, only to lose those said members to the world. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the United States is one of the greatest missionary fields in the world now, and it has been for a number of years. When we are well-ordered as a church, we will not only take care of our brethren at home, but also support mission uh, fields abroad. But like I said, I mean, Google it, or you know, Bing it, or whatever your search engine is. <laughs> you know, Bing it. That does sound funny, doesn't it? Um, and you'll see that the United States, if, if you compare uh, missionary, how many, how, how do I put it, how many of the population per missionary there is in the United States versus like um, Africa? It's like three or four hundred per missionary here and like 50 in Africa. <laughs> it's rather astounding. And so I'm not saying neglect that. Be led by the Spirit where you're going to send your support. Um, But uh, it does, as Paul says, do good unto all men, especially unto them which are of the household of faith. Uh, From Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6. Whatever our calling, as Christians we have a work to do in making Christ known to the world. We are to be missionaries, having for our chief aim the winning of souls to Christ. So she's not talking about necessarily where you're going to be a missionary because it's a principle. Jesus had a missionary uh, spirit, didn't he? God's spirit is missionary spirit. And when you have Jesus in your heart, you're going to have a missionary spirit. And then he'll direct where that's to be. But as Paul says, hey, the household of faith and to the world. But you're to be uh, um, do good unto all men. Uh, the fifth thing, she is to be a mother. Now, you're probably going, okay, how can we learn anything from that? Well, yeah, but what's the principle involved here? She is to be fruitful and multiply. Now, how does that apply to church organization? Well, the church is to be organized for service. This has a spiritual lesson, see? We're to make disciples and plant churches in all nations, see? Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. This was our gospel commission. Go ye therefore. Go, he's saying. We need to go. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Praise Jesus for that. But we're, we are to increase the membership of the body by spreading the gospel, making disciples, planting new churches where Christ is accepted. That's our commission. You know, in, in prophecy, we know that a woman represents a church. And, and what is it about Babylon? She's the mother, but she's the mother of harlots. See? And God's church is to be a mother as well. She's to be fruitful, multiplying. She's to be the mother of the faithful. From the 1888 materials, page 1723, the church is to be active in its working as an organized body to diffuse the influence of the cross of Christ, working for those nigh and afar off. See, that's part of being a missionary. You gain converts. Well, what do you do with those converts if you, if you aren't organized? You just tell them to you know, trust God and go your own way? Well, of course not. 
the sixth thing about a woman, wife, and mother. She is to be a teacher. She is preeminent in training her children in the ways of the Lord in everyday living. So we go out, we're missionaries, we get people, we say, well, come to church. Is that where the work ends? What do we do with new church members? Well, today's church says, what we do is we collect our tithes and offerings from them. (laughs) And that's all we do. What kind of spirit is that, friends? Proverbs 22.6 tells us to train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. New converts come into the church and it's how they learn more about Jesus. And they learn about the teachings of Jesus, the doctrines of Jesus. Okay, They get to a point where they're baptized and they become a member of that local church because it's organized for service, see? And you know, this process of helping new converts also edifies us. It develops our character to become more and more like, like Jesus. And I'll tell you, friends, it is the responsibility of all church members to help in the spiritual development of the, you know, we call them babe, the babes in Christ. And like I said, in doing that, we grow as well. We grow to be more like Jesus. Let me share this with you. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2, page 647. Care and affection for dependent children removes the roughness from our natures, makes us tender and sympathetic, and has an influence to develop the nobler elements of our character. That's talking about parents with their children, members with new babes in Christ. It's the same principle. Here's another one. The Review and Herald, March 22nd, 1898. Everyone newly added to the church is to be educated in regard to the work he is to do for the Master in winning souls to Christ. I'll tell you something, man. The churches today, the professed churches, they're so dead. When they do get a convert, you know what they do to that convert? It's like fresh blood to them. They lay so many responsibilities on a babe in Christ that they burn that person out. And that person (laughs) becomes like one of them. I remember I was new to the church and and I was stunned when I went to my first potluck. I couldn't believe the, the food that was there. Uh, they had a whole table set up of all these these things and uh, that, uh, you know, I'd been reading councils on dying foods and I'm like, what's up with this, you know? And I was talking to someone who'd been there a long time. I said, I went up to get counsel from them. said, what, why is this? I don't understand. We're, we're counseled not to have this stuff. And they just patted me on the back and said, oh, give it time. You'll be like one of us one of these days. I was thinking in my mind, well, if that's the case, I don't want to be. You know, and that's what happens. See, you can't neglect them. They need to be educated. And as parents are to properly discipline their children, the church must sometimes discipline its members. Proverbs thirteen twenty four: He that spareth his rod hateth his son; he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes, or at times. Remember that people are the property of God, right? Each one of us, we are purchased. And we're to be treated as He would want us to be treated. God disciplines us in the best way and we're, we're to do the same as a church. Rules and discipline are to be consistent with the Word of God. Right? Not the church manual. Now there's nothing wrong with a church manual per se, but when you lift it up to equal with God and you discipline people by the church manual... You have stepped off the platform of truth, friends. And let me tell you something. We just experience as a parent. Inconsistency can provoke a person to sin and it can cause a church to fall. Sad as it is, sometimes a member must be removed from membership. 
you know that a stubborn, disobedient, rebellious child was removed from Israel in the Old Testament by stoning them? They were taken outside the camp and Israel stoned them. Now, I'm not calling for that today, but there's a principle involved there. A stubborn, disobedient, rebellious church member is to be removed from church membership. After due process, of course, you know, according to the scriptures, such as Matthew 18 or censorship, whatever it may be. And there is to be no favoritism expressed by the church ever. All are to be treated fairly and justly. Acts 10 verse 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't play favorites. He loves us all. How we are to live as parents in the raising of our children is how we are to deal with members in the church. I hope you can see the parallels there. That we are to encircle and love and teach. We're to discipline and prepare our children as missionaries to the world. And the same is to be done with each member of the church. The seventh thing. We're looking at these parallels. The woman, the wife, the mother, she's to be God-fearing. Seems like a no-brainer, but that needs to be said. She's to love God with all her heart and be an example of Christ-like meekness to her family, friends, and neighbors. And I want you to think back now. When we started this, you remember the five items given for organization uh, that we read from the Spirit of Prophecy? Number three said, to protect the churches and the ministry from unworthy members, which we've been talking about. But that implies we're to be united in doctrine and church discipline. And so my question is, well, how do you determine an unworthy member? What did Jesus say? Matthew 7, Jesus said, By their fruits you shall know them. Isn't that right? I mean, you, you can tell the difference between someone who loves Jesus and someone who does not. Can you not? I'm, talk, I'm not talking about reading the heart. Okay? By their fruits. We can't read a person's heart, nor are we to judge their motives. Okay? But we can tell by their fruits whether they love Jesus or not. First Timothy 3 and verse 15, Paul said, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself. <coughs> Excuse me. Know how thou ought to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Genuine Christians are God's witnesses to the power of His grace and to the wisdom of His purposes, friends. And so what Paul's saying here, he, he urges church members to reflect in their lives the principle of truth they profess. Walk the walk. Okay? The people see the fruits of Jesus, the fruits of the Holy Spirit in your life. Manuscript Releases, Volume 14, page 150. The church is to be built on Jesus Christ, the only true foundation. Let us beware that it is not m marred in the building by the introduction of worthless material that will not bear the test of trial. So see, the church is to be built upon. Okay? by materials that will bear test and trial. And this is all, you know, you put all these together, they, some kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They kind of mix together, I guess you could say. They overlap. Some of these principles overlap. Well, actually, most of them do, but... Uh, Heavenly, in Heavenly Places, page 168, Christians must be entirely consecrated to God if the church is to be efficient in its influence for good upon unbelievers. That's why it's so important, friends, that, we're you, that, that as members we're united in doctrine and there's discipline in the church. You can't allow worldliness in. There, there is a reaction. There has to be a reaction to it. This is what has caused the churches to fall from the very beginning. 
a stepping off, even just for a moment, of the truth, then technically you've become disorganized. See? But the devil says, no, it's a new organization. That's why it's important to, when I talk about church discipline, I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, get the whips out and all this stuff, and you're always to be, you know, the thought police or, you know, the food police or any of that. Our eyes are to be left on Jesus. Haven't we learned that when we take our eyes off of Jesus and we look to each other, that's the beginning of a fall, the apostasy, the, the fall of a church? But if you have an open center in your church, something better be dealt. I mean, you better do something about it. You better deal with it. You're counseled. In fact, you're commanded by God to deal with it. This is really important. It's very important. It's a part of organization. In fact, it's so important, it was the third thing that she listed as for reasons for organization. (laughs) And I think it's a common sense thing to understand. Christians must be entirely consecrated to God if the church is to be efficient in its influence for good upon unbelievers. The slightest diversion from Christ is so much influence, power, and efficiency given to the enemy. Notice that she says, the slightest diversion from Christ. That's how important it is. Here's another one. Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 15. The church is to be as God designed it should be, a representative of God's family in another world. And that's part of that missionary spirit. Now, some may sin due to ignorance, and so, you know, a right instruction must be given so that the person may see their course and and repent, especially babes in Christ. That's a part of the sanctification process that we learned about. And we're involved in that with each other. In case that point didn't come out. That's a part of edifying. And that's part of leadership's role as well. Is instruction, teaching. Okay? One thing that a leader, if he doesn't have, he needs to learn, and that's tact and right methods to use to touch the heart. And Jesus is our example in that, isn't he? Even though he rebuked people, he did it with compassion. He wasn't stern. We need to learn to be patient and teach such by our example. As I mentioned earlier, children are apprentices. In the, I guess I mentioned it in part four. Uh, children are apprentices in the family circle who are being trained how to live a righteous life in preparation for their heavenly home. Their schoolmaster is Christ, and he's to be our schoolmaster too, amen? This is an example of how we are to behave toward new converts. They are to be trained in the school of Christ to use their spiritual gifts in service to others. And we, you know, like I mentioned in in Sabbath school, in this process of sanctification in our walk with God, we put limits on ourselves that God doesn't put on us. We put time uh, goals on ourselves. We may not write them out, but we kind of mentally do. And we, we too often, I think, beloved, as people, children of God, do that for others as well. We're not to do those things. Okay? We to, are to be as patient or learn to be as patient as, you know, from Jesus and become patient, loving, compassionate. And as these new converts, they learn and grow more and more like Christ, they'll become a productive, more productive member of the church and servant in spreading the gospel. Too many children today, I'll tell you, are neglected. And we see the kind of culture we have as a result. So friends, we can't neglect new converts. 
or we're going to see, a, and we have seen, we, we see it, a cultural change within the church. We see its results today, don't we? Proper gospel order will, as I've said, protect the church and ministry from unworthy members. That's what the prophet told us. It will protect the church from worldliness and apostasy. And we need to understand too, as groups form and and your your their membership grows, there will come a time for reorganization. It's just a part of the process. It's to be expected. It's to be anticipated. Notice this from Acts of the Apostles, page eighty nine. Summoning a meeting of the believers. So it's believers, isn't it? That's a church. The apostles were led by the Holy Spirit to outline a plan for the better organization of all the working forces of the church. The time had come, the apostles stated, when the spiritual leaders having the oversight of the church should be relieved from the task of distributing to the poor and from similar burdens so that they might be free to carry forward the work of preaching the gospel. And that's like a little microcosm of every local church. That's what will happen there'll be some reorganization as you get new members. And as churches uh, join with other churches, local churches to local church. And we have a church here in Lafayette. We have one in Battle Creek. We're joined together. We have separate meetings, do things separately, but we come together. We're united. And when we grow, we'll split off, etc. It's just like the cell in the body. We'll grow, split off, I mean, we learn learn these things from nature, even. So when you grow from a small congregation to a larger one, the needs increase, so you got to have a reassessment. That's proper order. There will be others who will qualify for leadership offices, and they need to be put to work in serving the flock to meet the incre- increased needs. It's kind of common sense here. Uh, Acts of the Apostles, page 90. Later in the history of the early church, when in various parts of the world many groups of believers had been formed into churches, okay, there's a proper order to things. Right? So you'll get to a point, you, you start out with Bible studies, you get to a point where you're meeting every Sabbath possibly, and they used to call that Sabbath schools. Okay? And then you get to a point where you say, hey, we need to be organized. We need to charter but she says, when in various parts of the world, many group, uh, when in various parts of the world, many groups of believers had been formed into churches, the organization of the church was further perfected, so that order and harmonious action might be maintained. Every member was exhorted to act well his part. Each was to make a wise use of the talents entrusted to him. So, spiritual gifts, talents, they're to be used. Some were endowed by the Holy Spirit with special gifts. First apostles, secondarily prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. But all these classes of workers were to labor in harmony. See? There's no jealousies with God. If Jesus is alive in your heart, there will be no jealousies. If you have jealousies, you pray for the grace to overcome those things. So as churches come together in reorganization, forming sisterhoods, it would be necessary to consider having, and I think this is very important, letters of commendation for members in good standing who transfer from one location to another. That's a part of that protecting the body, see? This protects the churches from false brethren coming into their midst. And I've seen this happen over and over throughout the movement, and better organization would stop it from happening. We, we were forced at one particular time several years ago to disfellowship a member and all he did was, he, he, didn't say, he said, you can't disfellowship me. I removed my membership. Well, you know, you can do, say whatever you want, but what he would do is he pulled up and went to some other independent church. Well, if we write a letter to that church and warn him, see, he needs to have a letter of commendation. That's a part of proper order. It would cut down on a lot of the apostasy, I'll tell you. Now, I want to touch on a principle that is necessary for church organization and that is biblical. Um, 
before we close up here and end this. And it's called biblical stewardship. It's the handling of tithes, offerings, property. It's a part of organization. We know what it says in Malachi. Malachi 3 verse 10 says, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. And that's the church, friends. The storehouse is is the ministry, actually. If you want to get it in a nutshell. It's the ministry of the gospel. That's the storehouse. That there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Now let me say that the ministry is the storehouse, usually at the local church level, if the church is a member of God's family in good standing. I think we can understand that. Now when we were members of the local uh, SDA conference church, I can't remember a time when there was not a shortfall in tithes and offerings. I was always amazed by this. I wound up serving on certain committees and, you know, and as an elder, I saw the importance of it because when people aren't given tithes and offerings, it's an indication, it's a flag to a spiritual condition, a spiritual sickness. And so I asked the treasurer, I was an elder, I asked the treasurer to give me some data on the number of members who were giving tithes and the number who weren't. I didn't ask for their names or anything like that. Okay? And I was told that of all the members that were on the books, only a third attended church, and of that third, only half paid tithe. I need to say, I was stunned by that. I've since found that that's a common problem among God's professed people. Uh, especially, you know, in the conference. They always have so many more people in the books than they come to church. And that, and, and, she's, and that was just with the tithe, friends. Offerings were a whole different matter. So I did a little math. I figured up that if only those who were paying tithe were to each pay just 1% each, just 1% each time in offerings that they gave, that the church would be overflowing with finances to fund the budget, the school, outreach, all that. Just 1%. There were actually around 50 members paying tithe. And so I remember I went up in front of the church and I, and I made a call upon the faithful members to give 1%. Just add 1% as an offering as we worked on getting you know, the spiritual ills of the other members handled, but it just fell on deaf ears. In fact, one older member told me that he'd done his share already and others needed to give. He declined to do it anymore. I was just, I was like, wow. That is a spiritual, a very serious spiritual problem that causes disunity and disorganization, friends. Let me share this with you. Adventist Home, page 367. If our own people would only put into the cause of God the money that has been lent them in trust, that portion which they spend in selfish gratification, in idolatry, they would lay up treasure in heaven and would be doing the very work God requires them to do. But like the rich man in the parable, they live sumptuously. The money God has lent them in trust to be used to His name's glory, they spend extravagantly. They do not stop to consider their accountability to God. They do not stop to consider that there is to be a reckoning day not far hence when they must give an account of their stewardship. Ties are to be laid up in store by the church to sustain the ministry. When I say the ministry, I'm talking about pastor, Bible workers, teachers, medical missionaries. Nobody else, according to God, is allowed tithe, friends. Offerings are to be given to sustain the church and for outreach. You know, outreach projects. This is a part of church organization. And God expects His people and church to be good stewards of what is His. I talked, touched on it earlier. That includes the property. Property's got to, you know, look the best that you can provide it to look. Um, so, you know, what we've done, and I, I'll share this, you get a bank account or two set up in the name of your church. Our church currently has one account for tithes. It used to have one for offerings. 
who we kind of over time have con, uh, combined them. But uh, uh, I would encourage you, you know, to get two: one used strictly for tithe, and one used strictly for offerings. That way, there's no mix-ups. And it's not just finances. You know, stewardship also involves the handling of property. It involves our influence. It involves our time. And we're going to give an account of stewardship one day to God. That's very serious then, isn't it? Our eternal life depends upon how we treat the Lord, treats the Lord's gifts. Isn't that true? Notice this. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 408. Our Heavenly Father bestows gifts and solicits a portion back that He may test us whether we are worthy to have the gift of everlasting life. So it's a test, isn't it? And like I said before, it, you know, when it comes to tithes and offerings, if somebody stops giving, that's a kind of a red flag. There's something going on there. There's a spiritual illness. There's a sickness there. There's something that's happened and it needs to be checked on and talked to the person about. I mean, they may have a misunderstanding with someone else in the church and or with the, the pastor or with whatever. I see it happen. And it just needs to be worked out. And as brethren, we should be able to work things out between each other. Amen? If we love each other. Uh, one last item for proper church organization, I'm just going to touch on this, is record keeping. The church needs a clerk or a secretary to handle the records of the church, such as membership, um, meeting minutes, etc., and we have an example all through the Bible. There is a record of our life recorded by an angel <laughs> of all things. See, um, we're to keep a record of the actions of the church for many reasons, really. You know, membership, growth, loss of membership, transfers, church decisions, such things like that. So it needs to be a record. So in closing, I want to go over the principles for church organization again. There are ten principles. Now, there's more than this, but these are the main. And uh, I apologize for the redundancy, but it's very important. First, the Christian family circle is a church. Second, family order teaches about church order. Third, the family and church are organized for character development and service. Fourth, not to be, uh, you're not to be organized. Right now, we're congregational until we can get in proper order. But the ideal that God has is that we're not congregational or a hierarchical form of organization, but we're a representative form of organization because we're all brethren. We're all invested. We all have a say. Fifth thing, we're to be united in faith and doctrine. And because it's so important, I always say, that includes who and what the church is, a right understanding of that. Sixth thing, have a covenant bond with each other in God. It means something when you put your name on the dotted line, friends. Seventh thing, we're to have a name that expresses who we are. Eight, leaders are to be set in the church according to biblical qualifications and the calling of God. Ninth, members are to submit to godly leadership and fulfill their role as a part of the body of Christ. And the tenth thing, the church is to have accountable stewardship and record-keeping. This is what we learn from the scriptures, from God's inspired writings. But I'll tell you, friends, the, the ultimate purpose of proper organization is to prepare people to meet Jesus face to face. That's what it's all about, beloved. The church is organized for service, and it's to prepare people to meet Jesus. Isn't that true? So I want to encourage you to consider all that the Lord has spoken in regards uh, to your role in the family unit and thus the church. It's really a very serious matter, one that needs attention if we wish to come together in gospel order as a people, ready to receive the latter rain. Friends, we all love Christ, I think. I think it's fair for me to say that. And we want to hasten His return. So let us work in our homes. Let's work as individuals. Let's work in our homes and church to do just that. I'll leave you with this. Colossians 3, verse 23. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again so much.
for the Holy Sabbath day. We thank you so much for the Holy Bible and your inspired writings that teach us and help us to understand um, this subject, proper gospel order. And Lord, I pray that your Spirit will move upon your people, that they will become an ordered people, that they will organize in their homes according to your principles, and, and that they will organize in their churches according to your principles, and that they will repent. We repent as a people for being disorganized. It's almost past time that we have the opportunity to put away sin. So, Father, I pray that you give us grace and, this, and the strength to do just that. When we see this done in our families, we will see it in the church. Please continue to be with us this day, that we may continue with our little taste of heaven. We thank you so much for Jesus and for hearing this prayer as we pray it in his blessed name. Amen.